The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Sean Kane. And me, Alison Flood. In this episode, we're talking true crime, one of the fastest growing genres in publishing, podcasting and media right now. This week, I speak to Rachel DeLoach-Williams about her new book, My Friend Anna. Rachel first met Anna Sorokin, then known as Anna Delvey, in 2016. Like many who travelled in Manhattan high society, Rachel thought that this odd, demanding German heiress was just another rich socialite from Europe, making the best of the luxuries New York had to offer. This year, Anna's story made headlines around the world when it was revealed that she was not actually a German heiress, but a regular woman from Russia who had defrauded banks of hundreds of thousands of dollars to assume a fake identity. In April, Anna was found guilty of grand larceny and was sentenced to four to 12 years in prison. Her former friend Rachel came into the studio recently and began by reading an extract from my friend Anna. You are here to read about Anna Delvey, and I don't blame you. I too found her charming while we were friends. The best villains are the ones you can't help liking despite their malevolence. That was Anna's power. I liked her so much that it took me six months to realize my dear friend was a con artist. The truth was right under my nose. From the outside looking in, people may think they comprehend the story of my friendship with Anna. It may seem easy to presume my motivations or assign blame based on stories in the news. But nothing about what I went through with Anna was simple. By telling my story here, in all of its detail, I hope people will come to better understand what it was really like to live through this experience. Ultimately, I believe that it's natural to want to trust people. I'm not sorry about that. Having this impulse doesn't make a person stupid or naive, it makes her human. In my opinion, it's a mark of good fortune not to have developed the type of cynicism that comes with so-called street smarts. If you'd asked me before I met Anna, I wouldn't have thought I lacked this type of common sense. I was skeptical of strangers, suspicious of new people, but I didn't see Anna coming. She slipped through my filters. You read about those characters in books, you see them in movies, but you don't expect to meet one in real life. You don't think it's going to happen to you. If you haven't yet had the experience, I can tell you, it is deeply unsettling to learn that someone you care about, a person you think you know well, is an illusion. It messes with your head. You replay the scenes, the words, the implied understandings. You pick them apart. You hold each bit up to the light and ask what, if any, truth it contains. Regret is an unproductive emotion. What's done is done. All any of us can do is choose how to react in each moment. Informed by the past, we decide how to move forward. I don't have regrets, but I can see how this happened, and there is something to be learned from that. I say something which is vague because what I learned seems to evolve and expand with time. I've processed this ordeal in waves, privately and publicly. Looking back on different parts, I feel a long way from myself, from the way I used to be. This is my story. Rachel Deloach-Williams, thank you very much for coming on the Guardian Books podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, if people get anxious about money matters, and I'm sort of one of those people, this book is sort of one of the most uh, unsettling and anxiety-inducing books I think you can read. <laughs> can you can you look back on the time that you knew her? And isn't it amazing, actually, that it's only three years ago that you met her, Anna Sorokin or Anna Delvey. She's got these two names. 
Do you think you can pinpoint the moment now with hindsight when you started sensing that something was wrong? Yes and no. You know, I think I can look back on the friendship and reflect on instances where I made a choice to rationalize behavior that maybe didn't jive with my values or the way I operate. So she could be rude or entitled and I would think of excuses for her without her even having to say anything, you know, (laughs) oh, maybe no one taught her manners in the way that my parents did or X, Y, Z. But it wasn't until long after our trip to Marrakesh when I really started to question her, her identity and the way that she was presenting herself to the world. You took this trip to Marrakesh that she'd offered to pay for. Then when you went to this lovely sounding Riyadh, which was very expensive, her credit cards were declined. And so she asked you to step in as a sort of temporary measure. And you were reassured that she was going to pay you back. And then over the coming months, it became very apparent that this girl that seemed like this German socialite, rich young woman actually possibly didn't have any money at all. And you sort of acknowledge in that preface that you read that of course people are going to be interested in her. And you wrote in one of the earlier parts that Anna was an oddball 26-year-old, half fashion, half foreign, and I mean that intrinsically, as in Anna had a quality that marked her as other, as outlandish, as strange. Can you sort of outline what that was? Is sure. It, do you think now that that was, you'd notice that she was possibly sociopathic? Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say, actually. Um, I, I think there was this quality that I couldn't put my finger on. It's what kept me watching. It's, I also think, part of her charm to the broader world who's now paying attention to her. The way she operates in her own world, in her own system, her own, she, she makes up her own rules. She does what she wants. I still can't quite define it, but I think you're right to say that that is part of a sociopath's charm, where you can't quite identify what it is, but there's something about them that you find transfixing, and you kind of get pulled in, kind of like a fly zapper, I suppose. <laughs> And and at the time that you first met her, you were working at Vanity Fair, so you had some exposure to the glitzy side of New York. So, you know, you knew how these things sort of operated. But it's so interesting now to think in hindsight that she was also an outsider to that world. But there was a sort of intrinsic quality to her, an air that she had somehow developed that meant that people met her and just assumed absolutely, of course, she's in this world. Mm-hmm. Does it sort of amaze you now that, you know, she was just a big, as big an outsider as you were to that world, but she was able to convince everyone that she deserved to be there? Yes, um, and also, no, I, I think even when I was friends with Anna, she did seem much like a loner. You know, mm-hmm. she, I think it's kind of funny in in the way that she's been portrayed after this experience when we she's been outed as a con artist looking back, there seems to be this sort of mischaracterization of her as somebody who was out on the town, everybody knew her, like living this lavish lifestyle. It's true she lived a decadent lifestyle, but it's mostly just because she lived in a hotel, but she very rarely left that hotel. Mm -hmm. And in the time when I was friends with her, I really thought I was her only friend, Mm. aside from the staff in this hotel where she lived. So, and it's funny, people, I've now been accused of social climbing through Anna, but it's so backwards because I worked at Vanity Fair. I have wonderful friends. I loved my job, and I feel, in hindsight, like she was using me to sort of access that world or to see how somebody in that world behaved. Mm. And it's interesting having read uh, other accounts uh, aside from your own because there have been so many stories about this yeah. this case. One of the members of staff at the hotel where she was based made note that she realised after a while that 
all these sort of lavish tips she was getting from Anna was not because uh, she was being generous, she was buying their time because mm-hmm. she was lonely. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think a lot of Anna's generosity maybe stemmed from the the fact that I think she enjoyed being able to be the person who could be generous and she wanted to be liked. And I certainly don't want to fault somebody for being generous. But I think as far as the way she operates in the world, it is fundamentally self-serving. And I think even her generosity had to do with its usefulness. And you say in the book you ended up even developing bad habits when you were hanging out with her. You started mm. drinking a lot more, sure. you started sleeping in a lot more, being late for things. You, you still sort of talk about her like she was an appealing person to be with at a certain point. Yeah, I liked her. I was friends with her because I liked her. I wouldn't, you know, I, I've since been, you know, accused of hanging out with her because she paid for things, but we ate in the same place every night that's not fun like I was <laughs> I was there because I enjoyed spending time with her yeah. you know I, I appreciated her generosity New York probably much like London is a place where you have friends who have more money than you you have friends who have less money than you she made it seem so casual and easy and she was so nonchalant about saying I got you like I know how much money you make she actually laughed and you know in an, in an example of me rationalizing her behavior her laughter at, at my annual salary, I listened. I was, at first, I was kind of bruised and, and offended, and then I thought about it, and I was like, well, now that you mention it, I do feel underpaid. So I kind of even took her laughter as being supportive when, of course, I'm sure it wasn't. I don't even, you know, <laughs> yeah, hindsight. I mean, well, that's the thing. It's, it's such an interesting idea because she also had this great capacity for being really rude and thoughtless. Yeah. But there's this attitude as well amongst I guess in a lot of the people that now have been reflecting on Anna and mm-hmm. people that have met her, that that's kind of excusable for the super rich, that they're all perhaps it's, a little bit like that. They're all a bit thoughtless. Like, of course, they forgot the credit card. Yeah, you know, it's so not excusable. That's a takeaway <laughs> for me. Um, but, you know, it was believable. I'll, mm. I'll say that for sure. But as you say, like, we could justify that behavior by thinking, well, she's never had to worry about monthly bills. Mm. or This is just the way that she can operate because she has a safety net. Mm. Reading the book with the hindsight that I only sort of became aware of Anna, of course, when the case started and reporters started uh, reporting back from what from the courtroom, mm-hmm. that I, I truly struggled throughout to find anything appealing about about yeah. Anna. But is there anything that you can sort of think back and look back on and think that was actually just a genuine pure moment? Yeah, with I, Anna? I can. And and when I catch myself doing that, I have to remind my. It's easy for me to fall back into this place where I feel sorry for her or I I think she's going to change and I have to really monitor myself in that way. But I really liked Anna. She was fun and she was smart. She had this grand idea for this art foundation that on paper or, or when she would talk about it actually sounded very impressive and like a cool idea. I mean, many of those places exist, so it's not that unique. But she would talk about doing these experiential events where she would pull in an artist to collaborate with a chef and then she had a way of describing the world that made you sit there and listen and I really just enjoyed that that she wanted to share these things with me and that she I felt like I was someone that she was able to be close to and I I felt that she isolated herself so I I took pride in being like there for her and in being a close friend. Mm. And so this Anna Delvey Foundation which is a This main project that she's sort of talking about when you came into her life. She's still saying now, even from prison, that she still wants to make that place. 
which to me is such an unsettling <laughs> thing. I heard that she wanted to open an investment fund in London. So look out, guys. <laughs> She's coming for you. You should definitely trust her with your money. Yeah. I highly... <laughs> yeah, I think... Joke, please I think don't. Not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so she's now been sentenced and she's in prison and yeah. she is going to be deported probably back to Germany once right. she served her time. But it's amazing that still now she's she said, I'd be lying mm-hmm. if I said I was sorry for what I did. Mm-hmm. Her exact words were, the thing is, I'm not sorry. I'd be lying to you and, and to everyone else and to myself if I said I was sorry for anything. Were you surprised by that? reaction at all but at the end of the the trial or were you just sort of absolutely resigned to that reaction I was surprised by that reaction because it was more self-reflective than I thought she was capable of and it was also the most honest thing I've ever heard her say so you know I think a sociopath is fundamentally unable to feel empathy or remorse in a profound and meaningful way so Mm. I think she's telling the truth when she says that And I mean, the physical effect on you, and this is the uh, thing that I felt most uncomfortable with, Mm. was having consumed all these stories and articles and features about this very strange case and this strange woman. Often, lots of different places have been framing her as sort of a Robin Hood figure because they could turn around and say, oh, you know, it's a faceless bank that she was trying to take money from. Right. Whereas, of course there were also very much identifiable victims here, including yourself. And the physical effects that you detail in the book from the time when you were trying to get this $62,000 back from her are really remarkable. I mean, panic attacks and hair loss. And Do you think you've lost anything in terms of your ability to see the good in strangers? Because that's one thing that you kind of do pride yourself on. Yeah, it absolutely took a big toll on me at the time, um, physically, emotionally. I am very lucky to have such solid support systems in place. I have really loving friends and family who kind of pulled me through this and helped me, you know, regain my balance in terms of whether I'll be able to trust people or will continue to look for the good in people absolutely you know I don't want to change that what I've what I've come away with is more self-awareness about myself as a trusting person who wants to see the best in people and I think now I will be more aware of instances where I may find myself rationalizing things again and again and again when people show you who they are believe them so Mm. once or twice fine but I I did it so often in my friendship with Anna I think that's a real takeaway for me is trust your instincts and pay attention Mm. and because it's such a fascinating story of course there's been a lot of reactions and interest in the story so of course you have got a a deal with HBO currently for your side of the story Netflix has been pursuing Anna's side of the story and even sent people to the trial to observe what happened in the room, in the courtroom. Yeah. It it is quite uncomfortable, really, from the outside, the idea that she might somehow benefit from all of this and the attention. And particularly the things like uh, you mentioned, the Instagram account that was documenting all of her outfits in the courtroom. You know, it's everything about her is is surprising and yet so on brand. It's another example of how her con worked, where you're paying, you know, you're watching her and you're amused by her, you're entertained by her. You can't put your finger on like what her deal is. She's just so audacious. Mm. Um, and now I see that as one extreme narcissism and two sort of a a distraction technique, so that you pay more attention to her 
peacocking than you do her crimes. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, on that Instagram account, they call her the queen. The articles where they've called her the boss. Yeah. You can get T-shirts, one that says fake German heiress mm-hmm. on a, another one that says my other shirt will wire you $30,000. There's something really callous about that. It all seems like a sort of byproduct of like meme culture or totally. like sort of modern cynicism. But yeah. when you read this book, it seems it's really cruel. I do think it's insensitive. And I, you know, I understand she's funny. I understand the appeal. I, I don't judge anybody for their interest in her. I get it. But I think it's also important to look at the more nuanced and, and serious implications of behavior like hers. Yeah. Can I ask, I mean, after all this, I I kind of f- still feel like I don't understand why she did it at all. Because she said that in terms of like making money, there were easier ways for her to make money. And yeah. in terms of attention, yes, now she's got a lot of attention, but then she's also opted out of that in certain ways, like refusing to testify in the trial. What do you think it was? Was it just because she thought she could and then she found she could? I think she really desperately wanted to be a part of this, you know, New York fashion art world. I think she was really desperate and driven and went to great lengths to take shortcuts, but she wanted in, and I don't think she knew how else to get there. And I I do question if she were to open the Art Foundation, you know, after she gets out of jail, if anything would ever feel like enough for her. She said that she wants to write books, one about her time in New York and one about her time behind bars. Yeah. Would you ever read anything that she wrote? I, you know, probably not. I think I'm, I've given so much of my energy and time to this person and your time is really an investment. So I I think I'm done with Anna Delvey. (laughs) Thank you, Rachel, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. My Friend Anna by Rachel Deloach-Williams is published by Quercus. We'll be back with a look at true crime books after this. Welcome back. My Friend Anna is a rare example of a true crime book that isn't murder-focused. As a genre, it has been dominated by serial killers and gangsters, or lurid paperbacks about terrible crimes that have focused on the perpetrators and never the victims. But there have been some amazing examples of true crime writing that have stood the test of time, and there are many new titles that are showing that true crime writing doesn't have to make suffering entertainment. They can be beautifully written, and responsibly too. Gillian Flynn, the author of Gone Girl, wrote a foreword for the excellent true crime book I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, where she said, I love reading true crime, but I've always been aware of the fact that as a reader, I am actively choosing to be a consumer of someone else's tragedy. So like any responsible consumer, I try to be careful in the choices I make. I read only the best writers who are dogged, insightful and humane. So who are the best of the best, Alison? How did you get into true crime? I think I'm someone that has avoided it for a long time because I've been put off by these lurid paperback covers and thoughts of kind of prurience over reading about some of these dreadful crimes. But I got into it because I wanted something to listen to when I was running. I started listening to podcasts and I didn't really know where to begin. So I started with Serial because I'd heard of it. And once I'd listened to Serial, I just was addicted to true crime podcasts. and I listened to loads and loads and loads. And from that, I got into reading it. And there's some really great stuff out there. I think the first the first book that I read was The Fact of a Body by Alexandria Marzano Lesnovich, which is about a Harvard law student who's given a case to look at about a child murderer who kills a six-year-old boy. And she starts looking into that, but as she does so, her own history of abuse and her own family comes up so that she kind of twines the two stories together. And I thought it was just beautifully written, both the investigation and her looking into her own past. 
seems like quite a normal progression these days that people have gotten into true crime through podcasting like you and then they've actually made that leap into reading books as well. Yeah, so Clement Knox at Waterstones told us that um, it's having a bit of a renaissance at the moment and that the makeup of the readers are changing. He pins it onto podcasts like Serial and the Netflix series Making a Murderer and says that the appetite for it is encouraging publishers themselves to publish more and better true crime. He also says there's a bit of a, an overlap between medical memoirs as a best-selling genre with books by forensic scientists or prison doctors who are kind of overlapping the, the memoir and true crime areas. We found out that sales year-to-date are almost double what they were five years ago, so yeah, about three is, million books a yeah, year. Which is amazing. Which is really amazing. Yeah. And there's obviously like quite a body of true crime writing out there mm. sort of from you know 80s, 90s, older serial killers and that mm. sort of thing. And then we've also got this new wave of writing that's happening now. So what are some of the titles that you have uh, you've come across that you sort of feel are really outstanding? As someone who's come to it late, I've been trying to read some of the, the classics of the genre and catch up on, on what I've missed because I do really enjoy enjoy it now so of course in cold blood but also the Anne rule book about ted bundy which a stranger beside me yeah which i think has always had quite a lurid cover but when you read it it's so carefully done and she knew ted bundy before he was discovered to be the person who'd been killing all of these women and she's so careful and sensitive i think about peeling back the layers of of what happened so i i found that absolutely brilliant she wrote a new forward to it in 2008 in which she she talks about how she wishes she had she had never written it even though it basically gave her her career she went on to write like 29 other true crime books but she also writes about how she hopes that in talking about what happened to some of these women, it gives other women the opportunity to think twice about, about doing something dangerous. And I think that that's what gives you the trust to follow her where she goes. She's not writing a sensationalist take on this, even though she easily could have done. This mm. goes back to what Gillian Flynn says about you don't want to be a consumer of someone else's tragedy in the wrong way, I guess. Okay, so the, I guess there's like sort of different strands because people probably have an idea of what true crime is based on what their encounter with it has been. Mm. Um, and so we were trying to break this down into like the sort of teeny subgenres in a genre. Mm. Um, and so we've got things like the professionals, I, I, what I'm calling the professionals. And so you have people uh, like uh, Robert Kessler who worked at Quantico. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote this book called Whoever Fights Monsters and it's sort of basically how he came up with the method of uh, psychologically profiling serial killers yeah. um, through interviewing them in prison. And then there's also John Douglas who wrote, who also worked for the FBI. He wrote Mindhunter, which is a massive Netflix show. And then there's people like Angela Gallup who's far more recent and she wrote When the Dogs Don't Bark and she's a forensic scientist. Yeah. And then you've got the kind of memoir side of things, I guess. Yeah, which is kind of probably the one that I haven't read too much of Mm. in that I think I kind of need that removal, I think, of a professional or a journalist Mm -hmm. to read these and not feel like I'm getting entertainment from someone suffering. Yeah, but last year, uh, the the book from the mother of James Bulger, Denise Fergus, was the the best-selling true crime book of the year, I Let Him Go, so... There clearly is an appetite There is appetite, yeah. Mm. Um, And some of the the names that do stick out, I mean, even Anne Rule, in the way that she she was a writer and she was removed from it. Her book, Strange Beside Me, is quite removed when it comes to Bundy, but she's also so involved in it that Mm -hmm. it it also does have that memoir element to it. Yeah. And then there's also things like uh, J.C. Lee Duggard, who uh, people would remember, she was held in a basement in California for 18 years Mm -hmm. and then was discovered and then uh, wrote a book called A Stolen Life, which was a massive bestseller. Mm -hmm. But uh, it makes me feel quite queasy to read a book like that, I think. But it's so strange because I will read about 
serial killers all day long. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the one step of remove, I suppose, yeah. that getting it from a journalist or an expert gives you, I'm not sure. Yeah. And then there's the, on the memoir side, there's also, which is how I would have characterised the genre really before getting into it more recently, the gangland or prison memoirs, the Cray Brothers type thing, which Clement from, from Waterstone said would have been the bestsellers like five years ago, Histories of the Cray Brothers, or I guess Jack the Ripper. That's always Peaky a Blinders is a thing yeah. as well, yeah. And then Clement said it was basically because the audience has become less blokey. Mm-hmm. That's how they've seen the bestseller list shift. That yeah. It has changed a little bit. And we were talking about this before. We both felt that I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara was a really... A uh, game changer. A game changer mm-hmm. in that it was so beautifully written and it was so intensely wrapped up with sort of news events because basically Michelle McNamara wrote this book about the Golden State Killer who was never caught was a serial rapist ended up becoming a murderer as well um, towards the end of his uh, spree but then disappeared and no one ever found out who it was and then Michelle was writing this book and died um, very suddenly and then a man was arrested for mm-hmm. the crimes committed by the Golden State Killer, and she it, came up with the name, didn't she? She named she did, him the Golden and she State knew, Killer. and she she's that's a fascinating thing in that she decided that he needed to have a name. Previously, that there there were names for him, but there were they were it was called the East Area Rapist, and like there were names that unless you know what the East Area is, mm-hmm. you know you don't necessarily what that relates to, and so giving him the Golden State Killer, so really reaffirming that this is the area he's working in, and he did kill people, mm-hmm. drew more media attention to the case. Because mm. suddenly there was this new buzzy title, and you know, why is he getting a name now? Oh, no one ever caught him, and yeah. she brought all this attention back. And then there was actually an arrest, and like sadly, she she didn't live to see this guy get arrested. But her book was sort of regarded as so important for but that she, happening. She does bring something else to it in that she writes about the victims, and she writes about the yes. police. She kind of like Gillian Flynn says she wants she wants hu- humane coverage of these things, and she really does humanize all of the people that she's writing about. She doesn't just focus on the killer. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's certainly something that I have enjoyed in when I've read a true crime book that's really impacted me. And I'm thinking um, particularly Somebody's Father, Somebody's Son by Gordon Byrne, which is all about Peter Sutcliffe. Um, and that was written, you know, quite a long time ago. But um, I actually only read it because a couple of authors who were doing the books that made me column in the Guardian Review, a couple of people mentioned it as the book they had wished they had written. Mm. And uh, particularly Carol Phillips, who was like, oh, my God, you have to read this book. It's incredible. And mm-hmm. I don't put Carol Phillips and Gordon Byrne together at all in my head. So I was like, that's a weird choice. And so then I went and read it. And you totally get why. It's because he's so interested in the community mm-hmm. of people around Sutcliffe as opposed to Sutcliffe himself and it's such a fascinating portrait of a community as opposed to completely focused on the killer. Totally I think that's true about Gordon Burns book about Fred and Rose West as well which Mm. doesn't even get to them for what feels like chapters and chapters because he's slowly building up these layers of the the real people who ended up in this house of horrors and it is a very hard book to read but I feel like he's done it all so responsibly and in depth that you don't feel a prurience or a sensationalism about it at all, which yes. is so important, I think. Well, that's possibly it. And that's why it's interesting that possibly true crime is going through this renaissance that Clement said, mm. in that the image of it has slightly changed, that people don't feel so much shame for reading it now because there are these examples of these books that are beautifully written mm-hmm. and don't dwell too much on violent acts or abusive acts. Mm. Um, and sometimes do actually have an effect like the Michelle McNamara book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That there is this image change that 
perhaps true crime's gotten a little bit classier. Yeah, I think <laughs> and we were so. talking even like with reissues, like so Gordon Byrne, uh, they've both been reissued by Faber and they've got nicer cover now. They've mm-hmm. got a foreword by Denise Mina. Yeah, um, like, not scary eyes. Yeah, exactly. Like... It's not scary eyes in the sky, <laughs> which yeah. seems to be a lot of them. Yeah. Um, that perhaps people are buying it more as well not just purely because of their interest, but because publishers are selling them in a different way. I think so. But there's been a kind of shift in general in nonfiction, I think, over the last few years in this this kind of strand of literary nonfiction that has come out across the board. These memoirs from barristers and doctors, memoirs of grief by, for example, Helen MacDonald. Literary agents have said to me that they think that people who might have gone for literary fiction in the past are wanting some more authenticity to their stories and so they're going for literary non-fiction instead because these books are so beautifully written. And I wonder if there's a shift for that in true crime as well, that maybe some people who might have been thriller readers in the past are like, actually, I can, some of these books will take me down that same pathway but they're true and they're beautifully written and they're done in a responsible way so there's that that move from fiction as well to non-fiction and true crime we were talking about this earlier this year when we went to london book fair because uh, each year when you go to london book fair you get talking to agents and you get talking to publishers about what they're buying and it's a really interesting preview into what will be published in the next sort of 18 months to two years and this year at london book fair true crime was the was the big thing, wasn't mm, it? Yeah, there was a really interesting kind of historical true crime that was written by a former bookseller about the Bender family of serial killers in Kansas in 1873, which went for loads of money in a big auction. And there was also a mortuary technician, Carla Valentine, whose murder isn't easy, looked, used modern science uh, to look at the murders in Agatha Christie's mysteries, which I can see appealing to a lot of people. <laughs> and the agents there were saying that, that it was the true crime podcast thing, which had driven the interest in the books, which had then subsequently driven publishers to find new things. Which would then drive Netflix to do an adaptation (laughs) and drive someone to do a documentary. Absolutely. (laughs) So then if we're going to sort of say uh, that true crime is something that, you know, perhaps people are feeling, still feel a bit queasy about it. I mean, Richard isn't here, but the spectre of Richard is tutting (laughs) because Richard (laughs) hates these books. But if we were, you know, if people feel like Richard and they're a bit like, oh, it's just, there's there's, there's something gross about reading it. If there were like Mm. three books that you would say, like, read this and maybe it will change your mind what would you say in terms of the three that you would choose I would say I'll be gone in the dark definitely yeah I found that absolutely brilliant I really love the fact of a body as well the Alexandria Marzano Lesnovich one that really drew me into the genre I think and then a more light-hearted one which is more of a, a caper crime really rather than serial killers type thing the feather thief which is about a 22 year old American who burgles 299 rare bird skins from a museum in Hertfordshire and the author of The Feather Thief Kirk Wallace Johnson he's American he hears about it on a field trip somewhere or other and then he spends two years trying to track down the details of why exactly this guy stole all of these bird skins I just found it (laughs) utterly charming and brilliant (laughs) that's great well if I was in choose three I would say Somebody's Husband Somebody's Son by Gordon Byrne because it was fantastic for something a little bit different, I would say The Five by Hallie Rubenhold, which is quite a recent book, it only came out this year, which is all about the victims of Jack the Ripper, but nothing about Jack the Ripper, which is such a step away from the sort of focus on him. And actually, Hallie Rubenhold, she was on the podcast and she spoke about it, but she's still getting abuse from 
what we call the ripperologists, the people that are obsessed with sort of solving who Jack the Ripper was, who have no interest in his victims whatsoever. They're interested in the mystery of the man and not the woman that he killed. Mm. Um, And she's been so vocal in her criticism of that. Um, And so her book is entirely focused on the victims and their lives and doesn't actually, each of the chapters about the the five women uh, ends when they are murdered and it doesn't go into the murder at all, which is such a fresh change. And then... For a non-murder-based book, because true crime can also be non-murder, I'm going to say Bad Blood by John Carey Rue, um, who was a journalist who was working on the Theranos scandal, which people will have seen in the news recently. That is just such a fascinating uh, look at a scam artist, basically. It's really, really good. And there's also several podcasts about it, too, if you need a gateway podcast to get into it. (laughs) Well, for something a little bit lighter, next week we'll take a look at the canon of English literature and how certain books have achieved classic status. In the company of Lisa Mead, Penelope Lively, Carol Phillips and Howard Jacobson, we'll look at how the canon is constantly evolving and where it looks like it will go in the future. As always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And as ever, please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Sean Kane, and me, Alison Flood, and our producer, Ian Chambers, thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Listener.